the first six years in Congress, I said climate change is nonsense. I didn't know anything about it, but that Al Gore was for it. And I represented the uh, reddest district, the reddest state in the nation, probably, which is Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina. So, But then uh, my son got to me, uh, a science committee trip got to me, and really is something of a spiritual awakening, another science committee trip with the awareness of the opportunity to be a steward of this glorious creation. Those three steps caused me to go from somebody that dismissed it to um, somebody that says, really, there's an answer here in free enterprise and let's, let's pursue it. I must say that for reasons I don't fully understand, climate change has become a partisan hot button issue where you know, people choose their position based on who they see on the other side. And that approach just seems totally wrong. It's based on science and it's based on commitment to, you know, while you want economic growth, you have to maintain sustainability so that your kids and grandkids can enjoy the same healthy environment. And those are nonpartisan issues. They certainly should be. This is kind of a great story to tell. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. I also host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. My uh, co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. He actually had to go into court. Before we begin uh, today's show and introduce today's topic, I would just like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more about Clio at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Was of the day that we are recording this, it is now official. The Electoral College has done its deed and voted, and Donald Trump is our president-elect. Trump had already begun the process of selecting the members of his cabinet, and his choices so far have garnered a broad range of reactions. One choice that has already generated some controversy is Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt to head the Environmental Protection Agency. Pruitt has himself led lawsuits against the EPA. He's questioned the science on climate change, and he's criticized environmental regulations as bad for the economy. Trump himself has waffled on climate change, has expressed hostility toward many environmental regulations, and even threatened to abolish the EPA. So today at Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look ahead to the future of environmental law and policy and uh, the Environmental Protection Agency itself under a Trump administration and talk about what we might expect in the coming months and years. To help us do that today, we have two guests who uh, are very knowledgeable about these topics. First of all, let me introduce Jody Freeman. Jody Freeman is the Archibald Cox Professor of Law 
and the founding director of the Harvard Law School Environmental Law and Policy Program. She's a leading scholar of both administrative law and environmental law. Professor Freeman's book, Global Climate Change in U.S. Law, which was co-edited with Michael Gerard, was published in 2015. She served in the White House as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change in 2009 to 2010, where she was the architect of the president's historic agreement with the auto industry to double fuel efficiency standards, launching the administration's greenhouse gas program under the Clean Air Act. Welcome to the show, Jody Freeman. Thank you. Also joining us today is Bob Inglis, executive director of Republican, that's R-E-P-U-B-L-I-C-E-N, a organization educating the country about free enterprise solutions to climate change. Bob launched the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at George Mason University in July 2012 and serves as executive director where he promotes free enterprise action on climate change. For his work on climate change, he was given the 2015 John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award. He is a former U.S. representative for South Carolina's 4th Congressional District, where he served from 1993 to 1999, and again from 2005 to 2011. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Bob Inglis. Great to be with you, Bob. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Before we turn to the the substance of these issues. Bob, I just wanted to ask you if you could give us a, a little bit of a background on your organization. I'm not sure a lot of our listeners will have heard of Republican, whereas Jody's at Harvard Law School. I think a lot of people have heard of Harvard Law School. I don't know if they'd be as familiar with Republican. So if I could just ask you to begin by giving me a little bit of background on what you are doing at Republican. Yeah, so we're conservatives reaching out to conservatives on climate change. We believe that... Um, what we have here is a problem of economics that has an environmental consequence. And that once we show fellow conservatives that there is a free enterprise solution that fits with their values, that perhaps they could join in this conversation. Up until now, they've maybe felt estranged from the conversation. But we think there's, a, uh, there's every reason for conservatives to join in they've got a good answer. It's called internalizing negative externalities. And the uh, very good news is there are many progressives that would agree with that. And the result is we can bring America together and lead the world toward a solution on climate change. And by the way, for the record, I happen to believe in internalizing costs. So that's great. I will tell you, Bob and Jody, that uh, once I said to uh, a reporter at the Greenville News, the largest newspaper in the district that I represented, that what we need to do is internalize the negative externalities. He stopped me and he said, um, what'd you say? Right. And I said, we need to internalize the negative externalities. He said, I can't write this in this paper, man. We write at the seventh grade level. Yeah. I said, uh, <laughs> reveal the hidden cost. He said, yep, I can put that in. The next day in the paper, it said, reveal the hidden cost. So uh, <laughs> that's essentially what it is. That's funny. It's also interesting that you are somebody who has yourself come around on the issue of climate change, if I understand it. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. For the first six years in Congress, I said climate change is nonsense. I didn't know anything about it, but that Al Gore was for it. And I represented the reddest district, the reddest state in the nation, probably, which is Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina. So, But then uh, my son got to me, uh, a science committee trip got to me, and really is something of a 
Spiritual Awakening and other Science Committee trip with the awareness of the opportunity to be a steward of this glorious creation. Those three steps caused me to go from somebody that dismissed it to um, somebody that says, really, there's an answer here in free enterprise and let's, let's pursue it. This is a really important theme, I think, for listeners, because I must say that for reasons I don't fully understand, climate change has become a partisan hot button issue where, you know, people choose their position based on who they see on the other side. And that approach just seems totally wrong. Uh, you know, it's it's based on uh, science and it's based on commitment to, you know, while you want economic growth, you have to maintain sustainability so that your kids and grandkids can enjoy the same healthy environment. And those are nonpartisan issues. They certainly should be. So this is kind of a great story to tell. Well, it's certainly become a partisan issue in this election campaign. And we have a president who has, has waffled on the issue. We have a potential EPA head who's questioned the science on this issue. So Jody, let me just ask, I mean, what's, you know, Richard Nixon created the EPA by executive order back in 1970. Can Donald Trump wake up on the morning after his inauguration and just issue an executive order abolishing it? No, he can't. And there's this sort of bluster and rhetoric about demolishing or dismantling or destroying the EPA and abolishing it. The president just can't do that kind of thing with the stroke of a pen through something like an executive order. And the reason is Nixon created the agency when presidents had the authority to reorganize the government because they were delegated that authority by law by the Congress. And those statutes pretty consistently were in place from the 30s into the 80s, but they have now expired and Congress hasn't renewed them. So the president can't abolish an agency by himself. Now, that's not to say Congress couldn't. Uh, Congress can do what it wishes with the agencies that it creates. But I think the likelihood of that is uh, is actually zero. Bob, what about you? You're a conservative. You're a Republican. Are Are you concerned? Do you have concerns about it? Trump administration with regard to environmental policy? Uh, yeah, I have, I have real concerns, especially uh, in the choice of someone who seems, in Scott Pruitt, mostly interested in undoing the work of the EPA rather than doing the work of the EPA. That's a great concern. I think it's also interesting that, you know, people like me who represented very conservative districts hear a great deal from small business owners, and it's important to hear them and their concerns about burdensome regulation. But sometimes we extrapolate to then conclude that the American people don't like the EPA. But actually, polling data shows that the American people very much like the EPA, that it's not as reviled as we conservative Republicans like to think it is. Um, And so, I would agree with Jody, the chances of Congress eliminating the EPA are somewhere near zero. I think it's interesting on that point about people actually like the EPA. I'm curious to know why you think they do. I think it's that they understand the basic commitment to public health protection, clean air, clean water, and they they don't want to be deprived of that. Yeah, I think so. And I I referenced the Greenville News earlier. About two years ago, there was a page picture looked like an angry town hall meeting. 
Uh, you know, the veins were popping out in the picture. You could see the people were angry. You would think it's maybe something about the Affordable Care Act or something, but it wasn't. It was a meeting of people complaining about South Carolina's EPA not doing enough to clean PCBs out of their creek. And so here's my prediction for you about Scott Pruitt at EPA. I think what he's going to find is if he does all this undoing that that people like me and perhaps Jody are concerned about, he will pretty soon find himself in front of such an angry town hall meeting that there will be people that say, listen, we want clean water, clean air, and good earth, and we want you to take action, and you're not doing it. And so I think he may find that that is not what people wanted. That was not a message of this election. Now, it is a message of the election to figure out how to do those regulations to the regulatory function as efficiently as possible so that you don't unnecessarily burden operations to the point where it's just completing paperwork or making it onerous for business owners. But people do want their air and water and land protected. One of the interesting things I've read about analyzing this is that there is momentum towards environmental protection within the states and within the private sector, that businesses themselves are kind of already, many of them are on a path toward more environmentally responsible policies that will continue even if there were to be regulatory change. I think that's right. And I think that the private sector really understands the trajectory of dynamics like climate change. I mean, look at the oil and gas industry, which builds a carbon price into their scenario planning and their strategic planning. They operate all around the world in countries that already are regulating greenhouse gases. And they know that four or eight years of a Trump administration isn't going to change the general direction, sort of the march toward cleaner energy. I think the private sector well understands that. They also have employees and customers that are demanding attention to basic public health protection and sustainability, and that drives their decision-making. And I also think the states, certainly the states that have shown themselves committed to environmental protection and to do something about climate change, those states are going to be fighting very hard, especially if the federal government pulls back. But I do think it's important to remind ourselves that all will not be well if we lose the driver that is the federal government apparatus in the work that needs to be done on environmental protection and climate change. In other words, there really is importance here to having the leadership at the federal level. And so when you see a Scott Pruitt at EPA, that nomination, and you see a a Rick Perry at the Department of Energy and a Zinke at the Department of the Interior and a Rex Tillerson at the Department of State, when you see that collection of nominees, the the message of that, the the image that presents, the the signaling is uh, a signaling toward trying to roll back some of the most foundational work that the Obama administration has put in place. And I think that's very troubling. If you put this collection of nominees together, the extent to which they question the science, the extent to which they uh, seem uh, committed to unwinding and undoing progress that's been made in the last decade or so. I, that's very worrying, even if we know that the states and the private sector will continue to play a role. Well, what is it that uh, we, we know that Trump has talked about 
certain policies that he may or may not target. He's, he's talked about the Paris Agreement on climate change and at least indicated that, that he might want to try and get out of that. He's talked about the Clean Power Plan in particular. What could he do on a fairly immediate basis coming into office? What are the sort of short-term concerns? Well, a president can immediately announce a lot of things, but actually accomplishing them, implementing them, takes some time. So I'll give you an example. The president could announce on day one that he's going to withdraw the United States from the international climate agreement that was struck in Paris. He could make that announcement. But the legal mechanics really require a four-year process. So that would not happen anytime soon. Likewise, he could announce that his administration is going to withdraw the Clean Power Plan, uh, unwind or rescind the Clean Power Plan, which sets the first greenhouse gas standards for our power sector, for power plants around the country. Now, he can announce that, but the legal truth is that the Environmental Protection Agency under new Pruitt leadership would have to go through a quite demanding, laborious process of rescinding the rule and replacing it with something else, and that could take a year, two years or more. So what you could see immediately is a lot of announcing of things, but actually operationalizing them has to follow the law and takes quite a bit of time. And there will be a legal struggle every step of the way. We need to take a short break right here. So stay with us. We're going to be back in just a few moments after these words from our sponsors. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, practice law. Learn more at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. And with us today is Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor of Law and Founding Director of the Harvard Law School Environmental Law and Policy Program. And Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republic Inn, an organization educating the country about free enterprise solutions to climate change. And we're discussing President-elect Trump's pick for the EPA and uh, the President-elect's potential impact on environmental policy. Bob, you served in Congress. What do you see as as Congress's role going forward here? Will Congress be somewhat of a reserve on what's likely to happen with environmental policy going forward? Yeah, I think what we're about to see is a collision between populism and conservatism within the Republican conference. And um, I'm putting my money on the conservative side of that uh, that conflagration uh, because it has sound philosophy and developed thought about how things should be. The problem with populism is it changes based on the direction of the wind and how the fire is burning and how hot it is. And so um, uh, for what I'm talking about specifically, take, for example, the, the populist promise that we're going to bring these coal jobs back. Well, it's it's easy to say that you're going to repeal the clean power plan, but it's a lot harder to repeal the price on natural gas. And uh, the result is that those jobs are coming back because of the price of natural gas compared to the price of coal. And so populism is going to hit an object there and an obstacle. And then uh, in various other ways, you know, berating corporate executives about uh, 
about their plans for expansion or where they're going to expand. That'll work in a one-off case, but um, as that goes on, conservatives are going to recognize that as industrial policy, and they're going to be saying, hold up, hold up on this populism here. So I think that's what we're mostly going to see out of Congress in the Republican conference is a contest between populism and conservatism. About the question of uh, regulation, the certainly the Obama administration has uh, implemented any number of regulations over the uh, last eight years, but in particular, there's been a flurry of, of last-minute rulemaking over the last six months or so. How easy would it be for an incoming administration to undo the regulatory framework that's been set by his predecessor, Jody? If I can ask you that. It's a really interesting question about sort of the last six months of an administration and whether or not to finalize rules or leave them without being finished. Most administrations, they do finish things up and they know that the next administration can come in and freeze any rulemaking, anything that's not quite been completed. And we'll see that very likely in the Trump administration. For any regulation that has been finished since the end of May, beginning of June, there's a process that Congress is entitled to use where it can essentially cancel out those rules. It can formally disapprove them by voting by a majority of both houses and then sending it to the president for signature. And that essentially eliminates that rule. It has to fall within the time frame under this law known as the Congressional Review Act that empowers Congress to disapprove these rules. So anything that's been finished in the last you know, several months could be vulnerable But because Congress is unlikely to spend a whole bunch of time disapproving individual rules, what I think you're likely to see is a few high-profile rules be subject to disapproval, things that the Republican-controlled Congress really wants to send a message about. There are some Department of Labor rules that are actually more frustrating to them than even the big environmental rules. So I don't think you're going to see handfuls, you know, you won't see scores of environmental or energy rules be disapproved, but you may see some. And what you saw on the campaign trail was President-elect Trump talked about the clean power plan as one big target, uh, but that was completed before this window. So it can't be subject to disapproval, but other things might fall within it. So the stream protection rule that just came out of the administration falls within it. So you may see some disapproval there. The other thing I think you're going to see from Congress, um, and I'd be interested to know if Bob agrees with this, is sort of death by a thousand cuts in the form of particularly targeted appropriations, riders, or prohibitions on agencies spending money to implement certain programs. And so you might see the Congress pass a big appropriations bill, and in it are some kind of poison pills that tell the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of the Interior that they can't do certain things with uh, appropriated monies. And that essentially can shut down a particular rule or a particular program. And it's hard to fight back against those things because the rest of the bill that that's part of is something that most of the Congress wants to approve. So I'd be on the lookout for those kinds of things. Bob, what do you think? Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I think uh, I agree with Jody that that it's likely is some riders that would defund or essentially prohibit agencies from doing certain things. The appropriations committees typically don't um, like those all that much because they want to pass as clean a bill as possible. um, And there's some procedural hurdles uh, to go through there. But I think we will see some of those. You know, those get to be somewhat blunt instruments, and you take on a lot of water politically because then you find 
the place where it really turned out to be quite a blunt implement, and that that can get you in trouble. So there is a, a correction that comes from the overuse of those. Jody, what is the the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and what yes. role does it play in this rulemaking process? This is the most powerful White House office nobody ever heard of, uh, <laughs> and it's known by its acronym OIRA. And it sits in the Office of Management and Budgets. Basically, think of it as the central control mechanism over all of the agencies of the executive branch, over all their major rulemaking. So when the Environmental Protection Agency or any other executive branch agency issues a major regulation, it must go into this office in the White House, and it's subject to a cost-benefit analysis, a very rigorous cost-benefit analysis. And OIRA then oversees a process where all the other agencies get to comment on the rule, and it typically comes out of this process with a stronger justification and perhaps amended to some extent. And if it doesn't meet the cost-benefit test, that agency is going to run into some trouble. And and this is true of both Republican and Democratic administrations, by the way, the role that this office plays is generally in the direction of testing regulation to make sure they pass the cost-benefit analysis and generally in the direction of, in fact, weakening them to some extent. That's what scholars have said about this office. We can expect it to be used much more aggressively, I think, in an administration that's already declared itself to be opposed to regulation. And we've seen Trump already say that he wants to try things like for every new rule, we should eliminate two. You know, this is a this is an easy kind of thing to say and very, very difficult to implement. So, uh, again, you'll see a lot of bluster about this kind of thing. And this office will be at the center of any effort like that. I think be very hard to accomplish in practice. You know, what does that mean? What kind of rules do you have to eliminate? Do they have to be of the same scope or scale or cost as the one that you're uh, actually issuing as a new rule? Nobody really knows how that would work, but it certainly makes for a good soundbite. We've been talking about rules and statutes on the books, but of course the EPA also has discretion about the extent to which it works to enforce those rules and, and laws, I would think. How much leeway does the EPA actually have? Were the administration to decide simply to you know, give up on enforcing a particular set of rules? Could it do that? How much leeway does it have? This is another area to watch because we've seen examples in the past, as long ago as the Reagan administration, we saw an example of an EPA that essentially was uh, defanged from enforcing the laws and the rules that it is responsible for under the leadership of Ann Gorsuch, Reagan's appointee. And agencies can do this by essentially just pulling back on aggressive enforcement postures. Uh, They can move staff around so that staff that are not committed to enforcement are running the enforcement operation. They can decide to cut states a break and not require the states to comply with environmental rules quite as rigorously as before. There are all kinds of subtle and indirect and informal ways to do this. But if they overreach in the way that Bob suggested sometimes agencies do, there will be a backlash, as there was during the Reagan administration uh, when Ann Gorsuch was ultimately deposed and Reagan had to bring in somebody with a very strong reputation, Bill Ruckelshaus, to run the agency because they overreached in this sense. If you go too far in under-enforcing, what happens is citizens start to notice and they start to complain because they notice the pollution and the under-enforcement. And you also have the potential to trigger citizen suits 
Uh, most of these environmental protection statutes allow private citizens to sue to enforce them when an agency doesn't fulfill its responsibility. So they may well try some of that, but then I think there will be a quite strong response to it. Bob, I wonder, I mean, we were talking about some of the sort of legal avenues in terms of enforcement and, and regulation, but to what extent does the general policy that the administration sets around the environment uh, control the environmental agenda? Can Trump's positions alone on environmental issues have an impact on private industry or on the environmental agenda across the country? Well, I think in normal times, I would say that uh, words have meaning and they're very important. But I don't know that these are normal times. So I think we're really in quite uncharted waters here um, where I think we're going to hear things from Donald Trump and read tweets from Donald Trump that then are not reflected at the podium at the White House uh, press room or throughout the official government because I don't think they can be reflected. I don't think they can be acted on. I mean, uh, there are things that he may pop off and say that I don't think um, will be acted on. It's going to be a rather awkward time, I think, to be the White House uh, spokesperson uh, because, you know, for example, with the allegations of voter fraud, if he had been in the White House, can you imagine being that person having to explain, yes, he has no data to support the claim, but he said it anyway in that tweet. Yes, I know he did. Next question, um, because there's, there's really nothing you can say to back it up. So uh, it's really a different time. And uh, what I'm hoping for is a path to correction that uh, Jody was just describing that I think is quite, quite interesting in that move to Ruckel's house at EPA. I'd predict for you that scenario may be repeated with Scott Pruitt, because once those citizen complaints start happening, that PCB is in my creek and the South Carolina EPA or the federal EPA didn't do anything about it, that gets attention. People get upset. They initiate citizen lawsuits. Um, things happen, and the result is that we might see the correction in, in the form of a Bill Ruckel's house coming later to EPA. So I think I'm hearing you both say that there's reason for concern, but maybe not reason for alarm, and that uh, if change is going to come, it's going to come maybe in increments and, and over time, uh, and certainly not overnight. I just want to offer a friendly amendment to that. I, I think there's <laughs> actually concern for alarm. <laughs> uh, I think there's concern for alarm. I wonder if Bob agrees, but I would say alarm, but not panic. Uh, that's okay. where I'm at right now in the temperature okay. scale. Um, and, and, and the reason is because there are lots of quiet things that are hard to see that an administration that's bent on undoing regulatory agencies can do. So, you know, we can see rulemakings. They're very public and you can challenge them in court. So undoing the clean power plan, that's going to be very visible. But I think internally destroying the morale of an agency, moving staff around, really making it hard for them to do their jobs, telling the Congress not to fund the agency in the budget request, all of these things uh, really take the wind out of the sails of the federal authority to protect the environment and public health. And I, I think that's something to be very, very worried about. 
And I think collectively, these nominees running each of these agencies, you know, if you put together Pruitt, Perry, Zinke, Tillerson, and the list goes on, collectively, they can really have a significant impact if left unchecked. So I would say I am alarmed. I'm especially alarmed about their deep disregard for facts and science. And they're running agencies that have to make science-based legal decisions. So the combination of a deep disrespect for science and combined with sort of Trump's total disregard for the separation of powers and for the rule of law, that I think is a very scary combination. So I think it warrants being uh, alarmed. But as I think both Bob and I have said, there are checks on extremes. And if our institutions work as they should, any extreme moves I think should be, uh, should be checked. Alarm but not panic, Bob, do you go with that? Um, I go with a high degree of concern, um, uh, and and it's like this. Um, I think that Rick Perry is going to find himself pretty uh, bored at the Department of Energy when he realizes that a great deal of the work is about the nuclear fuel cycle and not about his supposed expertise as a guy from Texas in oil and gas. I think that uh, Rex Tillerson could turn out to be a surprise. I'm hoping that he's a surprise, that he... Uh, says to the president, I changed the story at ExxonMobil. We were funding the disputers of the science until I sat in the CEO chair. And then we changed that. And we're for a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax at ExxonMobil. Uh, that could be a surprise. So I'm trying to look on the bright side and see uh, Rex Tillerson as the bright spot um, most of my high degree of concern is mostly about uh, Scott Pruitt at EPA, but uh, uh, Jody has laid out the path for a Ruckels House replacement, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful for that. There's a possible uh, upside story you could tell on all these nominees, right? The idea is that they were playing other roles before they got these new positions. Scott Pruitt was a state attorney general and therefore played the role of a very strong advocate for federalism and state rights. But perhaps the, the positive story might be he'll have a new role at EPA. He'll learn about the agency's mission. He'll be briefed by senior career appointees. He'll learn the science that he's been rejecting for so long. And perhaps he'll take the mission very seriously. I mean, it's always a possibility. So we could tell the sort of good news version of the story and the bad news version. And we, the truth is we're just going to have to wait and see. Well, that is true. And we have run a little bit over time. I, I like to give uh, our guests an opportunity to give their closing thoughts. You, you may have just given your closing thoughts, but uh, Jody, let me ask you if you have anything else uh, you'd like to uh, say on this before we wrap up the program. I guess I would say that the suite of federal environmental, public health, and natural resource protection laws that Congress passed starting in around 1973 through the next couple of decades have proven very resilient. Um, and I think the public enjoys the benefits of those environmental protections and doesn't really want to see them fundamentally changed. So I have some faith that what we have come to describe as the sort of architecture of environmental law and public health protection will survive uh, a Trump presidency. But I do think that as Bob said, this is not uh, a typical time. This is not a usual handoff from one administration to another where, you know, you win some and you lose some and maybe the party that you favor less is running things. It's an unusual time because we don't really know anything about what Donald Trump will actually do. 
And we don't really know whether his picks to run these agencies will be true to their public records or will accommodate and moderate somewhat. So I, I guess in closing, I would say people should be alert and vigilant and participate in the process. But I think it's appropriate to have an open mind until we see this unfold. Thanks a lot. And Jody, if our listeners wanted to uh, find out more about your work or follow up with you in any way, is there uh, anywhere you'd point them to to do that? Uh, you can go to Harvard Law School's webpage and find me there and find our environmental law program with lots of information about me and the program. All right. Thank you very much. And Bob, you get the final word today. Well, great to be with you, Bob and Jody. And uh, thanks to your listeners for tuning in here. We, we really need uh, the folks that are listening to join us at republicen.org, because if we have uh, conservatives listening who are looking for free enterprise solutions to climate change, who uh, are maybe uh, lawyers who understand that you do have to have respect for the facts, and uh, the facts are coming in on climate change. There's an awful lot of data, and we have an ideology that developed, a populist ideology that developed against that data. But eventually the data wins. And so what we hope to do at RepublicEN.org is accelerate the day that America comes together to lead the world to a solution here. And we think there's one that is available that's very acceptable to conservatives. It's what we started the show with, which is internalizing negative externalities. And it's also acceptable to progressives. It's actually the solution that Al Gore has been talking about for about 30 years now. But if you want to visit at republicen.org, you'll read more about how we think that's completely consistent with what conservatives believe. And uh, then we need you because um, we got to show politicians that there's support out there. Politicians typically follow. They don't lead. So we have to show them that there are some people that are counting on them to step up. And once they see that crowd forming out on Main Street, they will run around out front to lead the parade where it's already going. But they typically don't step off the curb because they're afraid of being roadkill out in the middle of the road, I think. So we got to show them there's a crowd out in the street, and then they will run around out front to lead it there and lead America to the solution and us lead the world to that solution. So I'm optimistic. It's just uh, what we've got to do is show that uh, we're here. we got a solution, and it's a solution that works both left and right, and uh, we can make it work for the whole world. Well, thanks a lot. We've been talking today with Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor of Law and founding director of the Harvard Law School Environmental Law and Policy Program. And also with Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republic, an organization educating the country about free enterprise solutions to climate change. Thanks very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to be with you. And I have found my new mantra for the next four years, alarm, not panic. I'm going to put that over my <laughs> desk tonight and uh, there you go. look at it every day. There you go. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks to all of you for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. 
Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.